Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We're continuing our series, AD 30. We don't have much to go yet here, but I've entitled our message, A Resurrected Jesus, Now What? Sometimes we discover something. There's something that happens in our life, and after that, things can just never be the same. Everything else stops. The future's altered. Plans are gonna change. Some great discovery. A number of months back, my, my wife and I went to the, uh, the Drumheller Museum. It was a pretty fascinating place. Uh, it was incredible. I loved how many of the bones there, and they would actually have, you know, a lot of times when you go to museums, they're sort of like they found a bone, and then they've constructed this monstrosity of a dinosaur off of one bone. But this is really an incredible museum because in many cases, many of the bones are actual, and, and some of them are almost whole, and where they are, they state that, and where they're, you know, replications, they state that. Uh, many displays included stories about just regular people making these fascinating discoveries about these great monsters, basically. So imagine if you were a rancher and you're in Alberta, where a lot of these bones have been discovered. And and you come upon one of these incredible monsters from antiquity. I mean, you immediately go from rancher to archaeologist. I don't think you could help yourself. And you're wondering what else is there. Everything else stops. Future's altered. Your plans change a little bit. One of my bucket list items is to try a little gold mining someday. And I was talking to somebody the other day about the streams. You can do that in here in Canada, up north. And imagine if in retirement, you're out there and you're doing a little gold panning and you come upon like a fresh landslide. Something happened on the side of a mountain in the Yukon that exposes some pay streak that the old timers never saw. If that were me, I'd be putting a claim in there. Everything else would be put on hold. Even the grandkids are put on hold. Not for Dee Dee, but for me. Everything else stops. Plans change because you made a discovery. I remember the day, I think this was the day I met Dee Dee. And we were at somebody's house and in uh, Edina, Minnesota, I think that's when I met her, and, and she comes kind of through the garage, it was a so-so for single adults, and she came and introduced herself to me and a guy named Dan, and I remember commenting about her as she walked away, and she didn't hear what I said, thankfully. It was good. But the day I met my spouse, everything changed. Plans were altered. Everything else was put on hold. It took a while for her to realize how happy she would be with me. Now she's one of the happiest women in the Western world. I'm so glad she doesn't have the mic. Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to that. It's like a treasure. Once you discover it, everything changes. Everything else is put on hold. He compared the kingdom of heaven to a treasure buried in a field. Sometimes in a pre-banking world, a field was the safest place for money because houses really weren't that secure and you'd 
he's here, remember the other stories about Jesus saying people would break through a wall in your house and they would steal treasure and so on. So, so in many cases, people would bury treasures outside in a field and then a war would take place or death would take place, displacement would take place, and many of those treasures would remain out in those fields. And so Jesus tells a parable, you're out in a field and somehow this treasure's become somewhat unearthed. And when you find it, he said, you sell everything you have, you go buy that field so that what's in it, so the contents are yours. His movement is like a treasure found in a field. You then own that treasure. Everything else stops. The future is altered. Plans are changed. That's what the early church was faced with immediately after the resurrection. Sunday morning changed everything. A resurrected Jesus changed everything. Everything. Because as soon as there's a resurrected Jesus, everything else is put on hold. The future's altered. Plans change. And that was the experience of the early church, what we're going to talk about today, because it's intended to be the experience of every Jesus follower if we really believe in a resurrected Christ. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 1. It's on page 91 of the Bible near you. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one out of the pew there. The New Testament sort of begins the numbering again about three quarters of the way through. Go to page 91. It's the book of Acts, first chapter. So this is Luke's second volume. Luke wrote Luke-Acts as a two-volume set. This is the beginning of his second volume, now that we have a resurrected Jesus. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, now this is a real key verse, and we're going to park on this a little bit later, but just think of this question. Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Just shows their mentality yet. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Just want to highlight four points from this passage and then a little application. But first, a resurrected Jesus is only the beginning. Acts chapter 1 is pivotal in salvation history. And Acts chapter 1 sort of sets the stage for everything that happened between then and continues to happen in the church today in the world. Think about this. Only near the end of his ministry, near the end, did Jesus openly claim to be God. 
So that's sort of new information. We think of Jesus now, we look back, we see the Gospels, it's clear that he claims to be God, it's clear that we believe he's the Son of God, etc. But it took a long time for the disciples to understand that. It wasn't revealed early on necessarily. And in the Old Testament, their prophecies of Messiah had to do with this earthly kingdom. They didn't see Messiah as being God. There's allusions to it. But the rabbis of Jesus' day did not see that. So the idea that Jesus is God is relatively new. It's close to the crucifixion where that actually happens. The idea that that Jesus could forgive sins was not widely known or understood. Now, yes, there's times where Jesus did say to people when he healed them, your sins are forgiven. He caused some you know, good debates with the Pharisees over that. They weren't real happy with him because they recognized that would be a claim to be God. That caused some problems. But he wasn't doing it everywhere all the time, saying your sins are forgiven. That, again, is relatively new. The concept that heaven only came through faith in Jesus Christ was not even understood by the 12. In fact, remember when Jesus starts talking to them about this. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. All those comments about what heaven would be for his followers, that took place in the Passion Week. He said that to his disciples right before he left the planet. That's relatively new information. Luke 24. Remember, after the resurrection, Jesus is walking on this road to Emmaus, is what we know it by. And he's talking to a couple of his disciples. And he's explaining to them how it was from the Old Testament that Jesus had to die for sins and be raised again. So even the apostles did not understand the substitution of Jesus on the cross for our sins until after the resurrection. He had warned them he needed to go to Jerusalem to die. They did not understand that he would be the once-for-all sacrifice. They would have been fine with continuing sacrifices in the temple and trusting that God, through the sacrificial system, forgave sins. In fact, do you know why the book of Hebrews was written? Because Jews in the first century continued, even Jews who believed in Jesus, to use the sacrificial system. They didn't understand that it wasn't necessary anymore. So all of this is new. The idea of salvation through Jesus as Son of God, Savior, and Lord is just being birthed now. It's not what was presented all through the Gospels. That's a new understanding post-resurrection Now imagine that you're one of those early disciples as they first understood those implications. It's after the resurrection of Jesus, and now for the first time, you get it. You really understand why he had to die. You understand that eternity is at risk in our hearts as it relates to believing in Jesus and trusting in him. Acts 1 is about just that. It's about what happened as they now understand we have a resurrected Jesus. So the Jesus movement has to continue. I mean, if you've got a dead Jesus, what if you have a dead Jesus? He never rises from the dead. I mean, let's move on. There's no world religion there. Just a crazy dude who thought he was God. And that's not a respectable moral teacher that I want to follow, by the way. Either he's God or he's a lunatic. Because if you think you're God and you're not, that's pretty problematic. 
I don't want to follow Jesus as a great example. If we've got a dead Jesus, it's over. But if we've got a risen Jesus, if we have a resurrected Jesus, and we have proof of that, we, we can't go back to fishing. We can't go back to tax collecting. We can't go back to whatever Judas did before this. The movement has to continue. They're not sure what it looks like. That's what Acts 1 is about. We don't know what it's going to look like, but it's certainly not over. That's the book of Acts. That's Acts 1. So Luke begins, as he's written these two volumes, by basically connecting his first book to his second book. His audience was a guy named Theophilus. His point in the first few verses, he says, I wrote this former book up until Jesus ascended to talk about what Jesus did in his lifetime. Now I'm giving you this book so you can understand what Jesus did after the ascension through the acts of the apostles, through what they did. And he gives some proof that we're dealing with the resurrected Christ. First thing he did was say that Jesus presented himself alive by many convincing proofs over a period of 40 days. Uh, again, uh, when, you, when you gather all of the evidence for a resurrected Jesus, it's one of the most well-documented events in antiquity. It, it's incredible. He didn't just rise from the dead and disappear. He was with them for a month and a half almost. He, there were many sightings. At one point, he was with 500 people in Galilee. And when the apostle Paul was questioned about the resurrection, he said, you know what? Most of those 500 people are still alive. You can go to any Starbucks or Caribou Coffee or take your pick and you can find them today and you can talk to somebody who saw a resurrected Christ. Once Jesus gave them that kind of proof, they knew that Jesus wasn't done. They didn't know that's what would entail. And this passage sort of reveals the summary of their reaction to it and what Jesus said would come next. Second, a resurrected Jesus required a new delivery system. So now the world is gonna change forever. What do you mean by a new delivery system? Here's what I mean. Do you remember how hard it was for Jesus' disciples while he was with them, early in his ministry especially, to see past the fact that he was their Messiah and King. Because their expectation was, if Jesus can perform miracles, and if he's the Old Testament Messiah, as has been promised, now we've got a miracle worker who can become our King and give us our independence from Rome. That's all they wanted. They've got a miracle worker. They've got this magic man in their minds on their hands. He fulfills Old Testament prophecy, and he's God. He might be God. Now we know he is God. Think of what he can do. That's where their heads are. Well, that's not over yet. Jesus is king. Jesus is son of God. Jesus paid for sin on the cross. That's largely not been grasped yet. And the disciples' question is this. Lord, Verse six, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? So they're still stuck on that. They're still thinking that Jesus, as miraculous as he is, after the cross, okay, now we get it, you had to die, we're not sure why, but anyway, you had to die, that's over. Now are we gonna get the Jesus we wanted in the first place? Now are we gonna get the world ruler, the one who restores Israel? They just don't see it. They just wanna keep the band together. 
In fact, later on in this chapter, that's what they do. Okay, we got to replace Judas. So they add another apostle. So we got 12 again. Kind of represented and probably, we don't know why there needed to be 12. Probably because in the Old Covenant there were 12 tribes. 12 apostles sort of matches that. We don't really have an explanation anywhere. But Jesus' response is interesting. He just says, it's not really for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, I'm not gonna tell you what's gonna happen with Israel. He doesn't really answer the question. In fact, you wanna have a great series that's hotly debated. Uh, you know, what is the future of Israel and God's plan? The future place of Israel is hotly debated in, by theologians. Some say the church is the new Israel. Israel has no nationalistic future in, in the future of God's plan. Some say Israel is highly prominent in the future, that the Old Testament prophecies about Israel are still going to come true. But Jesus is saying there's going to be a new vehicle, a new delivery system for the news of a risen Savior. He alluded to it earlier, said it would be the church. Not a nation among nations, not Israel being a light to the rest of the world, but it's going to be a group of people called out from all nations who believe in a risen Jesus. And that's what happened. A chapter from now, in miraculous fashion. That's us. Jesus goes on to describe this. He says, a resurrected Jesus will empower a global movement by God's Spirit. Jesus had predicted a new relationship with the Holy Spirit third person of the Trinity or the Godhead. He said earlier, he said, I'm gonna leave, but the Spirit's going to come. He's gonna come alongside of you. He's gonna be with you. He's gonna be in you. You're gonna be indwelt with the very person and presence of God. There are all kinds of implications of this relationship with God's Spirit. We're gonna be indwelt. He'll be within us. We're gonna be sealed by the Spirit, which means when we come to faith in Christ, that's an eternal relationship. We're to be baptized into the work of Christ so that we somehow participate in his death, burial, and resurrection, and that gives us power over sin in our lives. But in this passage, his point is this. You're going to be empowered to change the world. The miracle worker is going to be gone, but his power remains in his people in the church, and that's going to ensure the success of this new movement called the church. In fact, he says it's going to explode it's going to begin in Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria. It's going to be worldwide. And if you look through the book of Acts, actually that's the outline of the book. How the gospel of Jesus Christ began in Jerusalem and extended to the whole world, to the Roman Empire. In fact, there's summary statements throughout the book of Acts that trace its progress. Chapter 6, verse 7, it's gone through Jerusalem. Chapter 9, verse 31, Judea, Galilee, Samaria. Chapter 12, through the Philistine coast, the first Gentiles. Chapter 16, five, the Gentiles generally. Chapter 19, Ephesus. Chapter 28, Rome. It just talks about how the gospel's gonna explode and reach the ends of the earth, and the story continued. Europe, Africa, Asia, North America, Calgary, empowered by God's spirit. But how is this all going to happen? Well, there's a little word there that describes you and me and our role that we can't escape. The resurrected Jesus has commissioned each of us as a witness, a martyr to its truth. Can we get that last point there? A resurrected Jesus 
The next one, please. Has commissioned each of us as a witness, a martyr to its truth. It's an interesting word. A witness is somebody who's absolutely convinced of what they saw. I didn't see it. The first witnesses saw it. They saw a resurrected Jesus. But I'm a witness. I don't know anybody who would stand behind a pulpit today who's, who's a pastor who would say, we don't inherit the Great Commission from the apostles. I don't know anyone who would say, we don't have the same responsibility that we're not in the same place as this group of people. We are witnesses. We're called to be witnesses even if it gets us killed. That's the other side of this term. The word witness is the word martyr. It's the word martyr. Jesus has commissioned us to be witnesses knowing that the word means martyrdom is possible. He knew what he was commanding. They were going to be monotheists, believe in one God, in a Roman world which believed in many gods. And believe me, if you're the only ones who believe there's one God in a world that believes in many gods, you're not going to be popular. They were going to create a realm of sexual ethics in, in cultures that had absolutely no restraint. And if you do that, I think we would all agree you will also not be very popular. They would break down barriers in the early church between races and classes and sexes that was unheard of in the ancient world. They would value all life in a culture where if you didn't want your child, you took it to the public square and you left it there. Infanticide. To die or to be picked up, raised for a brothel or otherwise. They would value all of life in a culture where women and children had no power and little value. That would be the values of the church of Jesus Christ. That kind of movement of a people would not fit into society. Their values were offensive. They would be cast out of synagogues because they said Jesus was the Messiah. So they wouldn't fit anymore into the Jewish world. Jesus said that would happen. They'd be cast out of the synagogues. They became food for beasts in the great arena. They had to hide they had to have church in the dark, in the middle of the night. Public opinion would not be on their side. Jesus had said this. He said, to follow me, the student isn't going to be treated any better than the master. If they're going to kill me, they're probably going to kill you. He said, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross. Why would we do that? Because we believe in a resurrected Jesus. There has to be something after that. The movement is going to continue, and we are its witnesses. We're its martyrs. You and I inherit that mantle of this commission, this command. First and foremost, you're a witness of a resurrected Christ. That's your identity. You may be an engineer. Bookkeeper, doctor, lawyer, plumber, electrician, welder, mother, father. You may be all of those things, one of those things, two of those things, but you are first 
a part of a spirit-empowered movement that testifies to a resurrected Jesus. That's what you are first and foremost if you're a Christian. You're a witness. You're a witness martyr to a belief system that says, I believe Jesus rose from the dead and the consequences for my life and yours are incredible. When Jesus walked the earth, there are about 200 million people on the planet. I remember researching this, roughly 200 million, plus or minus. Today there are seven billion people on the planet. I'm assuming that's low now, but at least seven billion. But a lot of studies on how Christians fare in the world than versus now. And many have said that there are more martyrs today by far than there were in the early centuries of the Christian church. Now granted, there are a lot more people on the planet, but far more people are dying for their faith today than ever did in antiquity. There are a series of tunnels that were built in Rome a lot of this took place, I believe, just after about 100 A.D. There are literally hundreds of miles, 100 miles, I should say, well over 100 miles of tunnels that were carved out of rock underneath the city that was ancient Rome. And I believe the motivation for Christians to use those was twofold. They would be able to hide down there. They'd actually worship down in these tunnels, which are called the catacombs. But also Christians believed Christians didn't believe in cremation in the first century. Now, I, they, they had the view that you had to allow God to put the body back together in the resurrection a little easier. I think God can handle you know, ashes as well as dirt, but nonetheless, the early church did not uh, cremate people as pagan religions would. And so Christians wanted to bury other Christians and keep their bodies preserved, and not all people had you know, wealthy graveyard places like where Jesus was buried and so on. So beginning in about 100 AD, these Tunnels under the city were created, and 150,000 Christians were buried there. There are all kinds of sort of Christian graffiti throughout these catacombs. It was the only place the Christians could be as public as they wanted to be with everything about their faith. All kinds of Bible stories in these catacombs. But that was also an era where Christians died for their faith. 150,000 Christians buried there, about 15% of them at a minimum were martyred. 150,000, 15%, about 22, 23,000 of them died at the hands of people who just disagreed with their faith. A resurrected Jesus has commissioned each of us as a witness, a martyr. It's always been that way, that's what we've joined. Just a few applications. Do you understand that what you believe demands next steps? You are like every apostle after the resurrection. The gospels could have been the end of the story. You know, get to the end of the book of John, you got four gospel writers that say this is who Jesus was. You know, he looked like the Son of God and Messiah, and he rose from the dead. That, that could have been the end. They all could have gone back to fishing and tax collecting, etc. But but they recognized it makes no logical sense. If, if Jesus is really risen from the dead, all of our other plans need to be on hold. 
and, and no doubt he's going to have plans for us. I mean, if he's risen from the dead, there's something significant about that. Luke said, because Jesus is risen from the dead, there had to be more than the gospel of Luke. He said, now there's got to be the acts of the apostles that follow it because we've got a risen Jesus. There's more to the story. How are you and I any different? You've got a risen Jesus that you believe in. I've got a risen Jesus that I believe in which means there, there's another story to be written. The acts of you, the acts of me, the acts of every one of us. That's the next story. We believe in a resurrected Christ, therefore there's gonna be next steps in our lives. Second, the world is still experiencing a spirit-empowered movement. Now, I think it's really easy to get discouraged when you live in the Western world, isn't it? About Christianity. We're not... It doesn't seem like we're knocking it out of the park. If you're a Jesus follower, it feels a little bit like we're on the run. In the culture, philosophically, Christianity does not seem to be prevailing. And if all that was going on in the world was North America and Western Europe, that would really be the case. Kind of feels like Jesus is losing. But let me tell you a little bit more about what's really going on around the world. Just one example. One example, a place where you would not expect a healthy church, Iran, where you decide to follow Jesus and it's likely you'll use, lose your family relationships, your business relationships, good chance you're going to be interrogated. You might spend a little time in prison on some trumped up charges. Not a friendly place for Christ followers. Here's one story. In Iran, Mehdi Dabaj, an Assemblies of God minister, spent nearly 10 years in prison for his faith. A convert from Islam in 1955, Debaj is given every opportunity by the authorities to regain his freedom. First, he's asked to sign a paper admitting he was wrong and he wants to return to Islam. When this fails, he's beaten, tortured, put through mock executions. His wife is pressured. She succumbs to that. She converts to Islam and she marries another man. His children refuse to renounce their faith. So he loses his wife. Next, he's offered freedom in exchange for admitting he's mentally unstable. It's only after fellow pastor Hike Habsipian Mayor, chairman of the Iran's Protestant Council, courageously sends out an open letter to Western media publicizing this man's plight that he is freed. Not long after that, Hike, the man who made this public around the world, especially in North America, he disappears and his murdered body is found. Still, Debaj refuses to flee and continues his pastoral ministry, and he meets the same fate. He's killed. So you want to be a pastor in Iran? Not easy. You want to help make public what goes on there to Christians? Good chance you'll die. In 1977, there were about 2,700 evangelical Christians in Iran, almost 3,000, out of a population of 45 million. I'd say that's a significant minority with a pretty big task in front of them. Of these, only about 300 were former Muslims. So most of Iranians' Christians were not Muslims in their past. Today, this was written in about 2000 or 2001, 
That 3,000 went to 55,000 Christians, of whom 27,000 are from Muslim backgrounds. Now that's about 2001. Do you know what it is 20 years later? From 55,000 to probably around a million. Many of these are actually Muslims having visions of Jesus. Miraculous visions of Jesus because there is a spirit-empowered movement that Jesus prophesied about that is moving around the world. And yes, we see less of it in the Western world, but there are places where visions of Jesus to people who don't believe in Jesus, miraculous dreams and visions of Jesus are common and they're reported over and over and over. Iranians are leaving Islam by the millions Islam is losing converts by the millions. Christianity is one of the fastest growing religious movements in a world where you might die if you believe it. The estimate is upwards of a million. God is building his church. Now, it might relate a little different than it, you know, historically to the equator. I mean, a lot of it's South America, a lot of it's Africa, a lot of it's Asia, a lot of it's China where it's also not a very safe place to be somebody who believes in Jesus and wants others to know about it. But there is a spirit-empowered movement around the church, and the church is doing better than you could imagine as we sit here in North America and feel sometimes our freedoms are slipping away. You are a witness, martyr first. Third, you are a witness, martyr first. Now, I know how you feel. You think, okay, here's Pastor Paul talking about outreach again. Can he get on to a new subject? Well, I don't want to come at you like you have to do this. Here's how I want you to think about this. You're a witness to a resurrected Jesus. How can we not do this? It's who we are. It's who we are. It's our identity. We're Christians. We're Christ followers. Three simple ways that you can do this. You know, I, 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 I just like you, generally want to be liked by people. I, I really want people to like me. It's a little harder for me than it is for you, but I want people to like me. We all do. None of us want to be the oddball with the, you know, with the sort of scary religion that doesn't fit in society. I get that. I, I don't want it either. I want people to view me as normal, and that's a stretch for a lot of people, but I want that. Three things you can do. One, expand your relationships. Reaching people with the gospel is not pushing Jesus down everybody's throat. It it, it never should have been. It never has to be. But expand your relationships. One of, the, one of the great tragedies that happen in our lives when we become Christ followers is this. We go to church, and we meet other people like us. And we're like, hey, you believe what I believe. You have a lot in common with me. Let's hang out together. And as soon as that happens, most Christians, after a very short period of time, have dropped all of their relationships outside of the Christian family. That is a tragedy That is not something that is to be commended in us like, hey, we found our club. It's a tragedy that we're not living in both worlds, the church and the world. Expand your relationships. 
Just get to know a lot of people and include them in your life without the idea that they're a target, you know, don't make them feel that way. Just be a person in a lot of people's lives because it's awfully hard to reach people if they aren't connected to people who follow Jesus. Expand your relationships. Second, look for strategic opportunities to connect people then, after that, to a church context. This fall, we're, we're starting up Awana, and I think it just got posted on the Awana website. We just got our chart or whatever. We should be one of those pings on the map for people looking for that program. You know what was fascinating about that program? At least where I came from, and I assume it's the same here. Unchurched kids love it too. Isn't that amazing? You get kids who aren't from families of faith coming to a program where they're memorizing scripture and kind of competing to do it, going home, and their parents recognize that the values of Christianity are a good thing and they want their kids in it, and their kids love it. I, I, you invite kids along with your kids, they will come and they will have fun. But it's going to be hard to do that if you don't have a relationship with those families in the first place. Youth group, a way to connect kids to, to a church context, to kids who are children of faith. Adults, one of, one of the goals in our strategic plan, which we're still working on, is that a significant percentage of people in our connecting groups would be people who don't go to our church. In other words, what we want to do is you want to start a connecting group. Maybe you don't, just, maybe you don't do a Bible study on the book of Romans that you're friends who don't know Jesus would be a little freaked out by, maybe you do something about marriage or parenting or something we can all care about from a, from a Christian context. And people might not be freaked out by that. And you might have people in your living room learning about your God because there's something very practical in their lives that they want to improve. Expand your relationships. Look for strategic opportunities to connect people to a church context then. And then love them. Love them. If people know that they're a priority in your life, that's a powerful message. Jesus said that would work. That when we love, we love each other, he said the world would see it as an indication of his movement. How much more when we love them? Because you are, I am, a witness, martyr. First, it's who we are. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. I pray that we would be faithful witnesses in our world, that we believe in a resurrected Savior who is changing us and is the hope of the world. Help us to be the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.